At special times, believers in the Old and New Testaments believe that they ought to make covenants together, vowing that they would obey King Jesus. Following in their footsteps, in 1638, Scottish Christians signed the National Covenant which rejected the enforcement of prelacy on the Presbyterian Church. When threatened to have these rights taken away, the Scottish Covenanters in 1639 united under the blue banner which read, For Christ's Crown and Covenant. As direct theological descendants of the Scottish Covenanters, the RPCNA still honors the blue banner for what it stands for, that Jesus is the only head and king of his church. The Blue Banter Podcast's goal is to go about informing the reforming by introducing you to our pastors and under-shepherds of Christ Church. By listening to this podcast, you will have greater clarity on the blessings and challenges faced by each of our congregations. We pray that the Lord blesses you through this podcast for Christ's crown and his covenant. Welcome to the Blue Banter Podcast. My name is Aaron Murray, the pastor of Marion Reformed Presbyterian Church in North Central Indiana. My name is Joe Smith, pastor of Westminster Reformed Presbyterian Church in Denver, Colorado. We welcome you to the uh, first recording, at least, of the Blue Banter Podcast. We have our guest with us, Kyle Borg, who's from Winchester, Kansas. Um, Kyle is kind of known, you're known as the podcaster, I guess, of the RPCNA. You have, you know, three different podcasts. Um, your children's podcast, I think, uh, I forget the name of it, but that tends to be how my wife gets her news. Yeah, it's called The Daily Scoop. Okay, so. okay. The Daily Scoop. <laughs> yeah, I apologize for not listening to it, you know? <laughs> you know, I'll try not to take it too personal as long as Mary listens to it. I'm yeah, fine, so. well, I'll come home from work sometimes and she'll give me some weird fact about animals or something like where in the world did you learn that she's like well yeah aaron that that would be learned on our wacky wednesdays uh-huh. <laughs> so. okay well, there you go yeah so if you want to uh tune in on wacky wednesdays the daily scoop you can listen to uh kyle borg's podcast there um but you you've also got a book i think that uh has come out or is recently coming out could you tell us a little bit about that Oh man, I th- these are the things I don't like talking about. It sounds like such shameless self-promotion. Oh, well, so, well, I ask you, you know. Yeah, it's true. It's true. So, so yeah, I've I've recently written a book. Um I am the president of the Education and Publication Board for the denomination. And a couple of years ago, uh actually probably almost 4 or 5 years ago now, uh Daniel Howe, who's the pastor in Providence, mm-hmm. Rhode Island, uh, was also serving on the board at the time and He and I were kind of looking at the outlay of uh, reformed book publishing and uh, what what is available, what is not available, who it seems to be that uh, a lot of reformed books seem to be geared toward and and marketed toward, and really bemoaning the reality that Nine Marks, uh, Mark Dever's ministry, Mm -hmm. in some ways has the corner market on useful and practical ecclesiological and church fellowship, congregational life, things like that. Uh, But unfortunately, uh, always written from a Baptist and a congregational perspective and not from a Reformed Presbyterian perspective. So as Daniel and I were thinking about that and we were thinking about a trajectory for Crown and Covenant uh, as as board members, we came up and and hatched a little idea called what what became known as Grass Market Press. Um, So the history isn't super important, but Grass Market is is a place in Edinburgh, Scotland, uh, where a lot of the Covenanters uh, would have died uh, for the faith and and stood for the Protestant faith. And so kind of utilizing that, you know, the marketplace was a place where there was the exchange of ideas. Uh, people would talk, they would go there, they would learn things. And in older days, of course, maybe it's social media nowadays where people do that. But we we hatched this idea for Grass Market Press. 
And the overall goal, the overall aim of Grass Market Press is to provide really very digestible, very readable books on the doctrine, worship, and piety of the Reformed faith, uh, really drawn out of the Westminster Confession. Uh, and what is unique, at least what we're hoping is unique about this imprint, is that for lack of a better expression, the target audience would primarily be men who don't maybe particularly enjoy reading or reading is not a valuable thing in their lives. You know, as Christians, we have to be men and women of the book. Uh, we just do because God has disclosed himself uh, through through the inscripturated word. And so in discipleship and in shepherding, we do have to help people and and cultivate a love for reading. But we realize the realities. Your, your normal salt of the earth, blue collar man uh, is not one who maybe is always prone to read. And so the question became, how can we really encourage that kind of a man uh, in, in order that we can encourage him uh, as an individual, as a husband, as a father, as a member of the church? What can we do? Because a lot of even reformed literature out there today really appeals to theological nerds who love to sit in their ivory towers. Uh, the way that so much Christian writing is marketed is very feminine, um, all the way from the font in books. Uh, to the aesthetic design of covers, things like that. Um, and and we don't want grass market press. We don't want our titles to be that. So anyway, that was the background story. And of course, Daniel and I, this was our brainchild. We thought about this. We sold it to the board. The board was like, yeah, let's do this. Let's let's get behind this. And then of course, so to speak, we we had to put our money where our mouth was. And if we were encouraging this imprint, both Daniel and I felt, well, it would probably be good and appropriate if, if we started this imprint by by agreeing to be uh, some of the beginning authors. So I agreed to that. Um, I, I wrote a book called What is Love? And I know just cue all the corny 90s <laughs> jokes. You know, it's awful. I actually asked the publisher if we could change the name because of the association with that obnoxious song. I was turned down for that because I think ISBN licensing had already whatever they did. They, they weren't able to change the title, but whatever. It's called What is Love? And uh, the main premise of the book is just that uh, we, we live in a culture and a society where everybody, literally everybody is trying to give you a definition of love. Mm -hmm. um, you can turn to really from the social sciences to the hard sciences. I mean, mathematics has tried to figure out what is what is this thing we call love? Of course, today in our culture and society, a lot of men, young and older men, are getting their ideas and notions of love from pornography, um, and and that's expressing something of of what love, uh, what what people assume love to be. And 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 the point is, we have all these voices telling us what a definition of love is supposed to be. And I wrote the book saying, you know, we really need a louder voice, a more authoritative voice to really tell us what is love. Love is the, it is the endeavor of humanity uh, to come to understand and define what it is. And we need the voice of God uh, in the scriptures to tell us objectively what love is. And so that was that was kind of the approach uh, I, I began to take was just, we, we need this louder voice. Um, and then drew it throughout, you know, the, the book is not focused on romantic love. That's another thing, especially with the rise of romanticism. That's the way we generally categorize and look at love. But, but love is to define every relationship that a Christian has with anyone and everyone, whether that's his spouse, whether that's his children, whether that's members in the church, 
whether that's your enemy, you are called uh, in Christ to be a, a man of love. And uh, so that's that's really what the book was aiming at. And it, it was recently published uh, just last month. And so it can be found at Crown and Covenant, can be found on Amazon as well. Okay. All right. Well, we appreciate that. And I uh, I think that kind of gets at, in part, what uh, we're hoping to do with this podcast, because we're we're wanting it to be beneficial for young pastors like uh, Joseph and myself, but also be beneficial to your average pew member, as it were. And it seems like, at least with your publishing house, that's kind of what you're, you're aiming for, um, in part, at least. Yeah. So, Kyle, getting into just kind of the questions, like Aaron just said, um, kind of this is aimed for guys in seminary, uh, young pastors, and and just the lay members. I remember as a member, even before I approached uh, uh, my pastor about interning and internal desire uh, for the ministry, like I was just fascinated at, at what my pastor thinks about preaching, uh, what goes through his mind, what's he trying to accomplish in the preaching of the word and things like that. So I hope even other lay members will find some of these questions helpful, but as certainly as a seminary student, I would have found such questions helpful from a broad swath of men. So as far as, um, could you just speak to like your philosophy of preaching? No, you went to seminary at Puritan. Uh, Dr. Beakey and the crew up there are, are known for experiential or experimental preaching. Um, how much of that would you subscribe to? What What is Kyle Borg's philosophy of preaching? What do you think a sermon should consist of? What are you trying to accomplish? What do you What do you emphasize uh, in your preaching? Yeah, so I mean, to reduce that, what is my philosophy of preaching? Don't screw up. There we go. Three <laughs> words. Every time you get in the pulpit, I, I don't want to screw this up. No, I I jest about that. Well, I think this is a great question, and and Joe, a lot like you, even before I started training for the ministry, uh, I had an inordinate just. Uh, desire to know all about this thing called preaching and, mm -hmm. and what is it and how do we think about that? And and that has led I, in the last 20 years to just a, a lot of reading, a lot of study, and and I think a lot of thinking, but uh, who knows? So I will admit uh, in, in approaching an answer to this question, I will admit personally, and, and don't, don't like pile on me for saying what I'm about to say, <laughs> I am a little, if not very disillusioned with a lot of modern homiletics and homileticians. Mm -hmm. And so just so everybody, I don't know who all is tuning in, but homiletics is usually the study of preaching. Mm -hmm. um, and homileticians are those who study preaching. Uh, and I'm I'm rather disillusioned with, with a lot of what, what passes for homiletics today. Mm -hmm. I remember hearing a story uh, once that uh, when, when Dick Gaffin uh, took over teaching at Westminster Seminary, uh, John Murray, uh, cornered him. Well, maybe, I don't know if he cornered him or not, but John Murray gave Gaffin some advice. That sounds way more we'll just say that, you know, we'll, we'll let the legend spread. So <laughs> corner pushed him up against the wall. Uh, Murray, Murray talked to, to Gaffin and said, you know, Gaffin is, as, as you commence this life of, of being a professor and teaching systematic theology, he said, what is going to be really important for you is to avoid arc tectonics. Uh, meaning avoid the idea that there is a single way of doing mm -hmm. and saying everything. Mm -hmm. And I would apply that to preaching. Mm -hmm. um, there's a huge effort, I think, today to sell novel ideas. And it probably just gets into our marketing culture and the need to always have distinctives and to try to sell yourself on a particular point. But I think there's a big effort in, in modern homiletics 
to take what is an aspect of preaching um, and, and really transition it into the sum total of what preaching is supposed to be. Uh, so for instance, redemptive historical preaching is something that you often hear about in reform circles. And it's true, you know, redemptive historical preaching was originally applied to Old Testament narrative. Um, and, and how do we approach the historical texts? And, and in the Dutch culture in which it rose, it was primarily trying to gravitate away from a, a certain kind of moralism. Well, redemptive historical preaching in, in the hand of some contemporary homileticians has really become the sum, substance, warp and woof of all that preaching is. And I don't like that narrowness. Um, there, there, is, there are times when the redemptive historical paradigm, you might say, or the redemptive historical emphases is, is important in preaching. It is not the sum total. And I think we begin to see in, in contemporary preaching, the way that it's taught, the way books are, are written, that something similar happens with all these different kinds of emphases. So there's a lot of talk, you know, about uh, law gospel or indicative and imperative preaching. And that becomes the sum total of what preaching is. Every imperative has to be grounded in an indicative. And that indicative is usually um, a, 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 a very nuanced emphasis on Christ for us, uh, forgetting that Christ is more than just for us. Christ is in us. Christ is with us. Christ is over us. Christ is against us, you know, things like that. But, but a very narrow view that preaching has to fit into this law gospel indicative imperative. You think of Brian Chappell's fallen focus condition, again, sometimes useful when you think about how to apply a text, how to do those things, but wanting to make that the, the sum total of preaching. Uh, and even to be slightly critical of, of Joe, you brought it up already, but but my own training, you know, experiential preaching. Mm -hmm. um, I was raised uh, or not raised. I was taught uh, the experiential method. And and I think the experiential emphasis is is a much needed, much neglected emphasis in preaching. Uh, and, and just so people know what I mean by that, you know, I did four years at Puritan Seminary, and I sometimes wonder how many students could actually define experiential preaching when they got out. <laughs> What, what I understand experiential preaching to be is, is really bringing the ideal, bringing the word of God into the everyday real experiences of people. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it is, you often hear about it uh, correlative to discriminatory preaching mm -hmm. and everybody's in different places. And, and whether that's personally, whether that's in spiritual growth, whatever it is, um, you have all those differences. And so I... Um, but but even there, experiential preaching can be exalted to the mm. sum, substance, warp and woof of, of all of preaching. So I say that because uh, I'm, I'm opening on a critical note. You asked me what my philosophy of preaching is. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm telling you what it's not. Um, I really find that that all of that can, can sometimes be really misdirected um when when we have such a narrow and reduced homiletic in in that kind of way and i think it gets overplayed uh probably two of the most contemporary preachers homileticians that i think get something about preaching that very few others do would be martin lloyd jones and john piper hmm. um i find those two to have phenomenal homiletics that i really really appreciate hmm. so all of that to say when i approach preaching and my philosophy of preaching I usually tell people I have a fairly broad philosophy of preaching. I'm going to pause one quick second. This person, I'm not going to answer this. I'm just going to, <laughs> maybe you can edit that out. No, it's staying in. We're doing zero editing. Here. <laughs> oh man. Oh man. This is so embarrassing. So I, I totally, the first time they called, I answered and then I hung up right away. 
I don't know if that's good or bad, but he decided to call back. So I hope it's right. not one of the members of the church who's in need of something. It's not, you know. you know, it's a Wisconsin number. It's a 608 number. Yeah. Um, I don't, which used to be my uh, area code. I don't know who that would be, though. I don't communicate with many people from Wisconsin anymore. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, see, so now Kyle's talking on the phone. And uh, oh man, we're not editing this out. I promise it's, you, it's somebody calling to see if I want a candidate at a church in Wisconsin. It's really <laughs> awkward. Please edit that out. <laughs> so, I'll see what I can do. Oh man, all right. Well, that was that's all kinds of fun. So, all right, let me I'll go back to where I was. Okay, so all of that, uh, now helps lead me into what is my philosophy of preaching. I generally tell people that I have a fairly broad philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a fairly broad homiletic and, and if it could be summarized, it would be summarized in this way. The preacher is to bring God's truth through the means of human agency to real people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, that to me is what preaching is, is, is it is bringing God's eternal truth. And, and I say through the means of a, a human agency, through the means of a preacher, because I do think that that ultimately, and, and I don't need to get into the details, but personality is a very significant thing mm-hmm. when you come to define a philosophy of preaching. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, men should utilize their personalities and the natural gifts, abilities, and talents. And, and there's going to be a huge diversity in that. But it is, at the end of the day, my my philosophy of preaching is, is simply bring God's truth through human agency to real people. Um, and, and when you think about that then, and, and what are the aims, what are the emphases of preaching? You know, what, what do we hope preaching accomplishes? Well, well, first and foremost, we know from Romans chapter 10, that it is through the preaching of the word that faith is, is even generated. Um, and so that's, that's the first thing. And, and you leave that very much to the hands of the spirit. Yes. Discriminatory experiential preaching, but you, you pray that that word would be blessed to, to give and to increase faith. But then I also think it's important, you know, the Westminster Confession so helpfully tells us what kind of are the actings of faith. You know, what does faith do? Um, so once faith is generated by the preaching of the word, then then what should preaching aim to do to faith that is existent in the heart of a Christian? And, and the Westminster is so helpful here because, right, saving faith yields obedience to the commandments, trembles at the warnings, but then the principal act of saving faith is, of course, embracing the promises as they are freely offered in Jesus Christ. So when you come to the pulpit, when you come to preach, you know, that's what I'm genuinely aiming at. I'm genuinely aiming at that the word of God as it is preached would meet with faith uh, so that believers would yield obedience uh, to the commandments of God, uh, that that all would tremble at the warnings of God, and, and ultimately that we would come to savor the promises and to rest upon and to receive those as they're freely offered. So that's that's kind of my philosophy. I, I would say real quick, because again, this is, a, this is a topic I love talking about. I could talk all day, but nobody mm-hmm. wants to hear me talk all day about it. I do think at the end of the day, the very, very best expression of a philosophy of preaching is found in the Westminster Directory for Public Worship. Uh, it's pithy, it's short, it's like, I don't know, 10 or 11 paragraphs, and they convey more in those paragraphs than most books that are written on preaching. And what I so appreciate about the Westminster directory is, you know, when, when they come to talk about, you know, what, what is preaching? What does a, what does a sermon look like? Um, Right. They say, well, there, there needs to be a subject and it's fascinating because they actually say ordinarily that subject should be a text of scripture. 
Uh, but they don't confine, they don't pigeonhole and, and actually say it must always in all circumstances and in every case. They say ordinarily it should be uh, a text of scripture and drawing from a text of scripture, a principle or head of religion. But then they very quickly add, but this should be as the pastor sees fit. Um, and then they talk about there should be an introduction um, that shouldn't be too laborious for people. There should be a structure. One of the things I appreciate about what they say about structure is that more regard should be given to the matter than the words. You know, there's this perennial discussion of do homiletical outlines need to be exegetical outlines? Mm. I think it's a really stupid question. I think the <laughs> easy answer is no, it shouldn't be an exegetical outline. Please don't burden people like that. And the, and the directory is saying, you know, you should be more concerned about the matter than structuring according to the words. And then, of course, they say, you know, structure should be memorable. Um, I have, I think it's a curse. I don't know, maybe somebody would regard it as a blessing. I think in alliterations, it's awful. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, those are things that appeal to the memory. And I think that's what the directory is getting at is how you structure it. You want it to be memorable because preaching is about hearing. It mm -hmm. is utilizing the, the sense of hearing more than any other sense in an individual. Mm. Uh, here's what I love the most about this statement of preaching is at the very end, it says, this method is not prescribed as necessary for every man or upon every text, but only recommended as being found by experience to be very much blessed by God and very helpful to people. Mm. It's so pragmatic, right? Coming out of a uh, an assembly that is not pragmatic mm -hmm. in doctrine, they recognize that preaching is really, again, a broad homiletic, I think. So that's really, I don't know, that's kind of my philosophy of preaching, um, which which I think is important. Um, do you want to, do you want me to open any more on that or talk about preparation or anything? Or well, what, yeah, what I think, works? I think that goes into it. And it, it sounds like what to, just this, summarize it it seems like from your perspective and even the westminster divines is that preaching is not so much uh, a science as much as it is an art so as as we're kind of looking into that and you begin your week you've got your canvas you've got your paintbrush what what does your preparation for um preaching look like throughout the week like i, I heard some, yeah. some crazy rumor that uh you're like the road runner in sermon preparation and you can knock out a sermon and you know half the time that it takes most people so you, I, need to, I, you need to stop with these rumors. That, well, that's, I'm, I'm, I'm going to the horse's mouth. Well, you're, you know? <laughs> you're admitting right now, Aaron, that you just gossip about me and you hear a bunch of gossip about. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So it was so, it was more of a I got to defend myself, man. <laughs> nice. I heard this and I was like, all right, I got I got to know if this is true or not. You know? Yeah. So, yeah. so bring it up before you now. So here's here's how I would begin approaching that. First of all, um, because I have a broad homiletic. um. Sometimes as I, I approach preaching or a text, um, you know, I, I've been known to preach chapters at a time. Like when I mm -hmm. preached the book of Job, mm -hmm. I did not go slowly through Job. I went very quickly through Job and mm -hmm. sometimes took a whole speech of one of Job's friends covering two or three chapters. Mm -hmm. There's other times that I, I will try to preach a pericope. Um, and there's other times where, where I will preach a sentence. Uh, I have been known to preach on, on a single word. Um, mm -hmm. And, and that's not meant as some kind of boasting. I just, again, this is part of my, my broad homiletic. I think people need, they need that. There are times, you know, that the word is so precious and there's such a treasure to God's word. I think sometimes people really need to see that even in these small ways, so much can be drawn out. You know, we, we believe the scriptures are inspired and that means everything is very intentional um, and everything is conveying something. And, and so, so 
I guess the first thing is when I, when I come to a text in preparation is like, well, how much am I going to preach? Like mm-hmm. uh, how much do I think is, is going to be useful here? One of the things, and I don't mean to boast about the seminary I went to, maybe forever I'll say to all RP pastors, I went to the inferior <laughs> seminary to PRTS, <laughs> not to RPTS. But one of the things that I really appreciated about Puritan is that our professors were very, very good at individually working with each of us in assessing, you might say, what natural abilities or or giftings and grace uh, of the spirit is. And Puritan really, again, they avoided like preaching has to be this, you know, like you, you, you have to preach from a manuscript or you have to preach extemporaneously, or you have to preach from notes, or you have to spend this much time in preparation. They were very good when I was there at really working individually with each man to help us understand, you know, what, given your abilities, and and, and this is neither uh, better or for worse, better or inferior, you know, anything like that. It was just what, what do we think you're capable of doing? Um, and so my professors encouraged me in seminary personally. Um, they said, you know, Kyle, you you don't need to be a manuscript preacher. Um, they said, you know, you you think pretty good on your toes and and you should be fine. And so, you know, it's it's interesting. I have an identical twin brother who's a pastor. Um, and so and, and we actually were in seminary together. Uh, and it was very interesting to note some of those differences because they would tell him, you're a manuscript preacher, write out every single word you're going to preach. And and there's a just a difference in in twins. Hmm. Um, but my professors really encouraged me to the end of, uh, you know, at most bringing an outline to the pulpit. Um, and and then my professors uh, thought that uh, I I should personally aim uh, for three to five hours in sermon preparation um and 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 that 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 would be suitable and and actually encouraged me greatly in my years of seminary one of the benefits that I had is when I was in seminary for for two and a half years I provided pulpit supply for the RP mm-hmm. church in Grand Rapids and so I got to preach twice every Lord's Day while a student digesting all these things and I gotta just kind of practice and figure out you know what what do I like? What do I dislike? What works? What doesn't work? And and with the mentoring and, and shepherding of my professors, uh, you know, they said realistically, Kyle, th- three to five hours per sermon, you you should be able to do something, um, something w- with that. So so what does now? I you know, man, I just sold out, right? Like, oh, Kyle only works eight <laughs> hours a week; he doesn't do anything else. <laughs> so I, I'm a little hesitant to admit that. But where I begin with with my preparation. Most of my preparation is is a mental exercise. Um, I do very little physical, physical kind of sitting down, writing, rewriting. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is so like on, on a Monday or a Tuesday, um, I will look at the text that I plan on preaching on. Um, and and the first question I ask myself is, OK, what's the main point? And then I asked myself, is, is the main point what I want to preach or, or do I want to preach a subordinate point, which I think is totally, again, mm-hmm. I have a broad homiletic. So I kind of figure out what, what's the point that I want to preach? What's the point that I'm going to be emphasizing? And when I get that, then begins the mental gymnastics and the mental work of, of organizing. Um, my mind just immediately begins organizing what the text is, um, what I think, you know, good good useful points would be to to build into the main point that I want to be driving at. Um, sometimes I'll I'll use commentaries. I don't find commentaries overly helpful most of the time. Sometimes with maybe some technical questions, but commentaries are not written for pulpit ministry. 
um, at all. And so I also, I, I read sermons. I, I find reading sermons. We were always taught that good preaching is caught more than it's taught. Right. Um, and so to put yourself uh, under under other preaching was, was really important. And so, um, but I do a lot of mental work. I do a lot of mental organization. What am I going to do with this text? How am I going to organize it? Again, I said, I'm, I'm cursed with thinking in alliterations, which is just awful. And sometimes I just, I don't preach in alliterations just to show my congregation it, it is possible. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't have to do that. But once, once I really wrestle with your, for me, once I get my organization plotted out in my mind, I'm about 75% of the way there with, with mm. a sermon. And then usually on Saturday afternoons, I will sit down and then kind of fill in the blanks. Um, and so I've got the organization, I've got the structure, I know what I where I want to go. And then, and then that's when I begin to really commit to, to writing. Now, I don't preach from a manuscript. Um, I don't go out up there with, without anything. Um, I, I just don't. But maybe the best way to describe what I do, I it, it's kind of between a skeleton and nothing. Um, I don't know that I'd call it a skeleton. I, I also, this is a very, very strange habit. My, my, whatever I bring up there with me is all in encoded language. <laughs> um, so like my kids look at it and they're like, we have no, like, how do you even know what this says? And for whatever reason, I go up with a coded language. What is this like it, Elvish? It, like, <laughs> yeah, like Elvish. It's such a fancy script. No, uh-huh. it's, it's, you know, like I have, I have different symbols. Okay. <laughs> I have different symbols or different abbreviations for different things. So like maybe one of the most obvious is I would always abbreviate God with a theta. Uh, mm-hmm. And and so I just, if, if I want to emphasize that or, or church for me is EKK off of Ecclesia. Right. Mm-hmm. And it is just, it's, it's, it, but then everything really just becomes coded. It's really weird. Um, and just I don't to know protect how you from, or, like people like copywriting your sermons, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so that when I'm, when I'm good and gone, people, you know, they're going to some, somebody, some, some poor soul is going to be like, <laughs> I I'm going to get a degree in deciphering Kyle Borg or something. I don't know. <laughs> So it's, um, so I, I go up and, and that's what I preach from. Um, and, and most of what I bring up is simply to jog my mind, uh, in the direction that I want to go. Um, but I would say probably 90% of what is preached would be more extemporaneous. You know, I have, I have a very definite goal with where I want to go. I also go up, I, I do mine handwritten. Um, and I actually found that that really helped gravitate away from a manuscript and away and, and and to be more intentional. Um, you know, when you're writing, you know, when you, we all know what it's like to type, we can type anything and we barely remember what we type, but handwriting things out for me really helps impress it in my memory a little Mm -hmm. more. And so, so that, that's really how, how I would end up doing it. And then I, I've always been taught that a a sermon is never done until you say amen. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and that anything can really happen in the pulpit at times mm-hmm. so no that's as that's that's good stuff the rumors i was the i was the source <laughs> of the rumor from when we talked at presbytery and i had heard the rumor from somewhere else and so i was spreading it last night and, uh, was gonna, and i'm just confirming it right so we're just bringing yeah. it straight here yeah you know? so don't tell um, too many i know this is on a podcast now don't tell too many people though i don't <laughs> want to give away all my secrets <laughs> so well they're encoded language so right. nobody's going to get it anyways that's right that's right so so just for the sake of time we'll we'll May, may skip a few of these questions, but just to, to help you vindicate yourself so people do know that you work more than, you know, six to 10 hours per week. Uh, what What's your broader philosophy of shepherding? Um, you know, what are, 
what do you, you know, I, I'm a fan of Timothy Whitmer's book and his distinction between macro and micro shepherding. Um, and in a sense, the preaching is the the ultimate macro shepherding tool, if you will, in your toolbox. But what what does shepherding look like uh, for Kyle and and the elders at Winchester? And, and what are you guys doing there as far as your broader shepherding uh, ministry? Yeah. yeah, so I would agree with you. Preaching, you know, especially as a teaching elder, preaching is is the function for which I've primarily been called and set apart in the mm-hmm. eldership. And, and so that that is a huge part. I think I begin very briefly, um, you know, I, I think some of the characteristics of shepherding. So, you know, you, you think of first Peter chapter five, mm-hmm. uh, where Peter assigns to shepherds that, you know, we, we are to shepherd and we are to exercise oversight, not under compulsion, mm-hmm. right? Meaning we shouldn't just be reactive and we shouldn't just do the shepherding when we feel forced and pressured to do it. But the words that he uses, you know, willingly, eagerly and exemplarily right? Like we, that, that's the way we are to approach our shepherding. Now that, that can be hard. You wake up on a Monday morning or a Tuesday morning and, and there are days you don't want to be a pastor. And it's like, but I, I can't do this. Shepherding is not under compulsion. It is willingly, it is eagerly. Uh, you think about Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, where people are told, you know, you need to submit to those who are over you. Uh, you know, there's an honor that needs to be given by the church, but reciprocally, I, I think pastors, elders, shepherds need to be honorable people. Um, you know, the Bible doesn't just give subordinates this this task of, well, you need to honor and respect. Well, that means that those who are over you in the Lord had better be honorable and respectable people. And so you think about that with your shepherding. And and then First Thessalonians 5.12, uh, where, where Paul Silvanus and Timothy say, you know, you are to respect those. Uh, and I think the ESV translated it, translates it, those who labor among you. Uh, but the word labor is is actually a very interesting word there. It, it is the word that it's derived from the word weary, uh, mm. those who weary themselves for you. Uh, and I think uh, sometimes in our contemporary pastoral culture, we've really lost sight of that. Our, ours is, is a labor. It is a toil. And, and we will weary ourselves out uh, for the sake of the gospel and, and for the sake of the people that we minister to. So I find those things very important. Um, and then I, w- I would add really quick that kind of on a, a super level, uh, Herman Witsius in his little address, the character of a true theologian. So I, I think he gave that address when he was getting ready to take up the professorship in Utrecht. Uh, he concluded that address by saying something that has always stuck with me, where he told his students, whatsoever I do, I now do for you. I will weary myself in my studies. I will exhaust myself to no end, but all of it aimed to carry each of you in my bosom. Um, that, you know, and, and that's an old 17th century way of saying something sounds nice when you say bosom it sounds kind of weird though too but you know and 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 i think that 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 begins to get towards the attitude of shepherding everything that i i seek to do whether it's local whether it's on a presbytery level whether it's on a denominational level whether you can draw direct lines or indirect lines is really for the sake of the shepherding ministry here here in in winchester so how do we do that um you know it's it's a very interesting point uh, our session went through whitmer's book on the whole we really loved it on another side we were kind of like ah you know we wondered how much it intersected actually with with some of our our local experiences you know as a, a small hmm. church in a rural area uh, we are a very, very interconnected church. Our lives intersect throughout the week in a dozen different ways. You know, it's not like we just show up and we see these people on Sunday. And unless we're super duper intentional, we're not going to see them again until next Sunday. We see each other everywhere all the time in in every place. And, and you know, there's a lot of people related in the congregation. So, um, 
So that has kind of impacted or shaped, at least in my context, how I look at shepherding. Um, some of the things that I, I really emphasize in shepherding, um, fellowship, I think fellowship is really important. I, I love to have one-on-one -on -one relationships, but I also really enjoy trying to cultivate more of uh, uh, broader relationships among everybody in the church. So we do a lot of fellowship. Um, once a month, we have an elder group over after worship. Um, to, to have lunch at our house and, and people end up staying most of the afternoon till evening worship, uh, enjoying that. Um, I, I put a huge emphasis on our young people. Um, I just growing up in the church, I didn't have a pastor that wanted to give the young people the time of day, um, mm -hmm. or a senior pastor at least. And, and I find it very important, right? Our, our young people down to our youngest covenant children, they're, they're not the future of the church. They are presently the church. Um, and, and we need to be very influential and informative in their lives. And, and so I, I spent a lot of, I spent a lot of time really trying to connect with our young people. As you were, you're telling us about visitations, which as you said, is kind of the pink elephant in the room of the, uh session meeting. Yeah, I think, you know, with, with, with as far as the pink elephant, you know, I just, even after 10 years here, no idea what the expectations are for visitation, how many people want to be visited, how many people don't want to be visited, things like that. But, but it is an important aspect, um, you know, and, and, and I think the way that I would characterize visitation here in Winchester is uh, oftentimes more informal. Um, of course, if somebody says, Hey, I really need to talk make sure that you, I go over there, uh, meet with them. Uh, but a lot of it is just checking in with people, seeing how they're doing, um, making sure, you know, I, I, I love to be present in their homes. Um, I don't make that a, a law of the Medes and the Persians. Um, cause some people just may not want somebody in their home or be hospitable or, or whatever. So, uh, but we try to, uh, we try to, I try to get around to everybody in the church. Uh, my new goal for this coming year is, is to be in everybody's home at least four times. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that is for, for the purpose of like a sit down meeting. Right. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of having people through our home. Uh, my wife is, is wonderful at opening our house. I think last year we had some 400 people pass through or, or whatever. And so mm -hmm. we, we try to do that, but I love to get into their homes, uh, just as an expression of getting into their lives as well. Uh, and then of course there, there's always times where very, very intentional visitation and shepherding needs to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, a marriage is not doing well and we need to go talk about that, or we need to confront this person in sin, or, uh, this person has a rebellious child and is really torn up about it or, you know, wh whatever it is. And so I think the important thing, whether you, you have a program of visitation, like a lot of churches do, or whether you you do more, you know, the trendy millennial word would be organic. Um, <laughs> wh whatever it is that you do, right? You just, you want the ministry of presence. Like mm -hmm. you want to be present in people's lives uh, and you want to be a fairly ordinary presence in people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, and and so that's that's kind of what I aim at when, when it comes to visits. Um, sometimes more, sometimes less. It, mentally, pastorally, I kind of have an idea, you know, I know these people, probably need to be visited a little more. They're, they're a little more shut in or, or they have uh, maybe less people in their lives. And, and then there's other people who do really well. I stay connected with, and, and there's really no pressing need that I'd be there, but I, I still want to get there a couple of times a year. So that's, that's kind of the way I look at visitation. Sure. Yeah. And so it sounds like one of the blessings of uh, being in rural ministry, as you mentioned earlier, is there's a lot of cross-pollinization throughout your week as you guys are interacting with each other. Cross-pollinate. What, what an Indiana word. Good work, Aaron. <laughs> Listen, and you, you made fun of us for being millennials. I think the organic type of thing is great. You know, I use the word. So come I'm at a me, bro. I'm a millennial, Aaron. I'm on the very cutting edge of millennials, <laughs> okay. but I'm a millennial. So. Yeah. <laughs> 
So as, as you think about uh, rural ministry, what are some of the blessings um, and challenges that, well, one, you face as a pastor, but also that uh, you see your members have as well? So blessings and challenges of just being a member of a rural congregation. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I have a huge heart for rural ministry. You know, I actually got to go. I was visiting Scotland a few years ago. I was in Strenrar and uh, I gave a talk on a Lord's Day evening on rural ministry. So now I actually regard myself as an international speaker mm. on the topic of rural <laughs> ministry. So um, I, I, I feel pretty good about that. Um, I love rural ministry. I, I grew up in South Central Minnesota, grew up in a rural uh, community, not quite as rural and small as Winchester, but but still rural. And, uh, you know, growing up and, and growing up in the church, uh, just realizing what what uh, a lack of Christ exalting churches really do scatter the landscape of rural America, mm-hmm. um, and and I think that uh, biblically speaking, contrary to what Tim Kellerites and others might have you think, um, the city is not is is not the sole point of the strategic mission of of the ascended Christ. Um, you know, in in Acts chapter eight, when Peter and John uh, go to see what's happening in Samaria. Uh, Luke very specifically tells us that as they return to Jerusalem, they preach the gospel to many villages, uh, to many hamlets, to hem- many, I, I think the word there is, is basically countryside towns. Um, mm-hmm. That is part of, of the goal and the ambition of the church, right? Christ has a people in rural communities, and he is worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. So I have a huge heart for rural ministry. I think there's all kinds of... Um, before getting to the challenges, there there are blessings, um, you know, in in some ways, and this is not meant to be critical to anybody or about anybody, but one of the things that I love is our our local church is actually local. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get commuters; you you get people who live within. You know, we we have some people that travel a, a distance, but but most of us live with, within within a stone's throw of one another, um, mm-hmm. and and that allows. That allows, I think, or at least helps create the environment for the one another's of scripture. Um, you know, the, the church, the church is not just your Sunday community. Um, the people in church also become your social circles. Uh, they become the people that you serve on on boards and committees in, in the community and, and county with. Uh, they are people where your your lives just literally intersect in in so many different times and in so many different ways. And that to me is a huge blessing because it really does allow and equip the church um, to be the church without the unnecessary obstacle of geographical boundaries. Um, you know, and and I'm not saying that churches that draw from wide areas can't be the church. I'm just saying that it creates a hindrance. And, and, and that's not so true uh, here in a rural community. You know, being in a rural community, also one of the major blessings for me is uh, the visibility, the transparency, and the presence that we have in our community. Um, that, that can be a challenge as well. I mean, our church has a hundred percent visibility. Um, I remember I did an internship in Indianapolis and one evening, uh, we went door to door, um, at Southside to, to some of the, the houses around just uh, mm-hmm. within the neighborhood of the church. And actually, Aaron, one of my teammates was your wife. <laughs> so oh, yeah, yeah, we, we went door to door and we introduced ourselves and we, you know, I'd be like, hi, my name's Kyle Borg. I'm an intern at Southside, uh, and, and they'd be like, I mean, we're talking like three blocks yep. from the church yep. and people would be like, what church is that? It's like the big brick one right <laughs> on the intersection. And they would literally be like, I drive by that church every day and I've never noticed that it exists. <laughs> 
it's not true in Winchester, mm -hmm. right? Everybody knows the Presbyterian church that mm -hmm. comes with challenges, but it comes with blessings. Um, you know, I, I think we have a good reputation in the community. Uh, we're 154, 100, 154 years old. And, um, providentially when, when people's lives are falling apart, they, they turn to, they turn to the church. They, they, they call me, you know, how many community opportunities I have had simply because I live in this small community and, and there's visibility, there's transparency, there's um, all of that. And and that to me is one of the major, major blessings. Mm -hmm. um, now there, there's plenty of challenges, you know, there's, there's already socioeconomic challenges to rural areas. Um, look, we don't have all the amenities people want, uh, you know, and, and people want their comforts. They want their amenities. Um, there, there's challenges in that, you know, a rural community is, is on the whole, at least a community like Winchester is very static. It's not dynamic. There's not a lot of fluidity. Um, the people that live here have been here for 60, 70, 80 years, uh, which means, you know, and, and maybe this is a blessing as well, but the people that we have to minister to are the people that we have to minister to. Uh, we don't really look down uh, the, the road and say, well, you know, in, in 10, 15 years, the dynamic of our community is going to be very, very different. There's going to be all new people. There's going to be a 90% turnover rate or whatever. No, it's it's the same people day in and day out, year after year, decade after decade. And, and it's a challenge. It's a blessing. But, you know, what how do you effectually minister in, in, in that way? You know, how, how do you deal with people in the community who are not members of the church and have very intentional reasons of not being members of the church? Um, you know, you can't just say, well, in five years, they're going to move. Somebody else is going to move in and, and we'll, we'll, we'll work with that person. So there's, there's those types of challenges. Um, of course, I, I, I do uh, a number of, of presbytery visitations, uh, often with the rural congregations of our presbytery, um, just because I, well, I'm an international speaker on rural ministry. So <laughs> um, but, you know, some of the challenges, too, is is the the, the very uh, the very ethos of rural congregations can be very depressed, uh, very despondent, very lacking vision and, and real reason. You know, we're, we're here because we're traditionalists and the church has always been here. Uh, lacking maybe some some forward drive and motive that no guess what uh, you've been given a commission from heaven um, and and you are to go and you are to advance uh, from one one degree of glory to another and, and advancing still from strength to strength and and so there can be a depression there can be a despondence uh, a lot of the rural churches I interact with uh, they always want to speak in terms of if only if only if only if only we had this if only we had that and one of my common themes is, look, biblical stewardship is being faithful with what you have. It's mm -hmm. not being faithful with what you don't have or what you wish you had. It's being faithful with what you currently have. So mm -hmm. you might not have a lot of families. Well, figure it out. How are you going to be a faithful steward? You might mm -hmm. not be having big budgets. And, and I already don't care for big budgets that much. You know, you, you might not have many bottoms in the pew or whatever, but stewardship is being faithful with what God has given you now. How are you going to be faithful with those things? So sometimes overcoming those even just mental challenges that people in rural churches have um, is is a challenge in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, I mean, that pretty much wraps up our main slate of questions. And so I I told Aaron that I wanted to maybe toss out a couple or a, a question to guys. And I was hoping Aaron and I would disagree on this. I thought we would. Which I'm offended by, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we would disagree and we would get to help have a fellow pastors help us settle this matter. I was surprised. I tossed this question out. Uh, our Sunday schools at Westminster were catechetically 
working through the shorter catechism, you know, drawing on Fishers and John Brown Haddington and things like that. And we just did question 16 on our fall in Adam as our federal head. So at the end of it, you know, it works toward by ordinary generation, obviously excluding Christ from those who had fallen in Adam. And so as the bonus question in that, and it stirred up all sorts of conversation and fun, uh, I had no idea would. So we're looking for Kyle Borg's answer on this. Could Jesus have gotten ill? Man, all right. So here's here's what I would say. You're going to have to edit this. Uh, um, cause I need to pull something up real quick. <laughs> Give me one second. Oh yeah. Do your thing. I was pretty committed to not editing anything. So we're, you're really testing me here. Kyle. Are you really committed to not editing anything? <laughs> I mean, if something really bad happens, maybe, but we'll see. We will. Oh, edit listen, you I can't, I can't put my sermons together in five hours. I've, I've got a lot, you know, going on. I just don't have the time. Right. <laughs> You know, when I started doing the Jerusalem chamber, I would do all the editing and it would take like three hours to edit an episode. It was horrible. Mm -hmm. So, um, okay. So I would begin answering that question in light of the larger catechism question 48. Uh, how did Christ humble himself in this life? Christ humbled himself in this life by subjecting himself to the law, which he perfectly fulfilled, and by conflicting with the indignities of the world, temptations of Satan, and infirmities in his flesh, whether common to nature of man or particularly accompanying that his low condition. So I think, you know, and, and maybe some of it depends on how you would define illness, how you would define disease. Um, but Christ carried within himself the infirmities of his flesh. And, and there we have to understand in, in the catechism's teaching, I'm, I'm shooting from the hip, so somebody can go fact check me and tell me I'm wrong. But right, we should not read infirmities of the flesh there in terms of the sinfulness of the flesh, because he became like us in every way, but was without sin. Uh, Christ did not have sinful infirmities in the flesh. So when the catechism speaks there of the infirmities in the flesh, I, I think some of those those things that are natural to man uh, in a fallen state, sicknesses, diseases, things like that. Um, I think that Christ, uh, I, I would say, yeah, I think Christ could become sick. Now, scripture doesn't tell us if he did. You know, one thing, and again, this depends on how you define categories, right? When when Christ sweats blood, that is actually, a you know, in, in today's world, that is a medical condition. Uh, and and it is considered an, a physical ailment of of uh, the the there's so much anxiety the arteries begin to burst so that blood comes out of the pores um, and and it is it is a, a a sweating of blood so some people will say well look right there I mean Christ had this medical condition um, that that is is can happen in our natural bodies so I would say I man are we going to debate this I would say Christ <laughs> Christ could Christ could become sick he he could have now it would not be a sickness leading to death uh because the life that he lived he he laid down willingly of his own volition um and so he would have been preserved from that but I I don't see a biblical reason to reject the idea that Christ could become sick Well you disagree <laughs> Yeah we we find ourselves at that. so I uh I mean we could probably talk about this forever but when I think about, you know, the infirmities that, that Christ bore, I think of things like he grew tired, he grew hungry, he grew weary, he had to sleep, that kind of thing, which would be, you know, as a, as a human condition, even a pre-fall infirmity where the Lord provides food for Adam and Eve to eat every, you know, fruit of the tree. We are to rest on the seventh day, that kind of thing. 
So, so it's interesting that I think we're looking at infirmities. You're looking at it a bit broader than I am. I'm looking at it a, a little bit narrower. Either way, it's it's fascinating to see where people land on this uh, this discussion. So the way I presented it to my congregation, I think uh, one-year-old professors David Murray uh, has a helpful little article on could Jesus have gotten ill. And I, I'm swayed by the fact, you know, the fourfold estate of man, you know, what was what estate was Christ created in? Obviously not glory, obviously not grace. He didn't need salvation. That leaves innocence and fall. Obviously, he wasn't created in the estate of sin. Uh, so he was in the estate of innocence. So he had legal innocence and he would have been Ecclesiastes 729 created in an upright condition. He's referred to as that holy one and that lamb without blemish and without spot. And then I think uh, Murray drawing on other guys, Smeaton and uh, Athanasius and uh, Goodwin, I think he he quotes from, uh, he draws the distinction between natural weaknesses of finite man and unnatural weaknesses of fallen man. And so in essence, he would argue that sickness is, is a seed of death. It's an effect of the fall. And so I find that line of reasoning persuasive. I had some uh, some heavy hitters in my congregation disagreeing with me, and it was all sorts of uh, a fun discussion and everything like that. So we just we needed to know where a, a superior theologian to ourselves was was at on this matter. You know, so one, Aaron, let me respond to you real quick. Please do. I think that you're not dealing with the fairness of the larger catechism because it is the infirmities of the flesh, whether common to the nature of man, which would be things like sleep, hunger, things like that, or particularly accompanying that his low condition. He took the form of sinful flesh. Mm -hmm. um, and so you you are dealing there with natural infirmities, but what would you, I, maybe you don't want to answer it, you don't have to, but but what what is meant then by particularly accompanying that of his low condition? And Joe, as a quick response to you, <laughs> you know, I can just pull out a lot of, oh, I read William Perkins and Samuel Rutherford once, and no, I won't do that. But I think, you know, I, I, I would wonder, what relationship this question would have to to the mental anguish and the man of sorrows yeah. um that certainly in his spirit christ bore the weight of the miserable condition into which we have fallen um and so you know if if uh, you know can we say could we say that as as the one who distinguishes himself as the man of sorrows christ dealt with mental sicknesses um, you know, the, the sickness of the soul, the dark night of the soul, depression, despondency, things like that. Um, if you say he can't be physically ill because of X, Y, or Z, would you have to say the same about, about his spirit? All right. Well, good stuff. We'll think about it. Someone's going to write a paper. <laughs> good stuff. To We're going to end now. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> well, we told you we would take up uh, an hour of your time and we've taken up uh, just over that. Um, so we do want to thank you for giving us your wisdom regarding preaching, rural ministry, and uh, whether Jesus can get sick or not. <laughs> so thank you. Um, I guess all that's left to be said is for us to, to sign off. So we thank you for listening to the uh, Blue Banter podcast. Again, um, I'm Aaron Murray, Joe Smith here in uh, Westminster, Colorado, and the international speaker, Kyle Borg of Winchester, Kansas. <laughs>